Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Peinecker, and my co-host, Rebecca, say hi. Hi, everybody. Rebecca is back. And folks, we also have a special guest. We have a man with a beard, Benjamin <laughs> Schaefer. Welcome to the hi, program. Uh, thanks for having me on. One of well, the bearded to... men. The bearded man. Now I have to say, when I first met you, I said, you're like my favorite fundamentalist polygamist. But I can't say that now because I've had Ann Wild on. And then uh, I had the chance to meet like six or seven of your other members of your church. So Benjamin, you're my, you're still in my top 10 of favorite fundamentalist uh, no. polygamists. <laughs> <laughs> so either way, folks, I want a couple of things I want to talk about. The merch store is open. Uh, you can get, uh, actually right now hats are sold out, but you can get t-shirts, hats, you name it. You got a coffee mug on the way, Rebecca. That should have. Well, I was hoping it would be here today, but it's not. So. Show us the mug you got this week. Well, I'm back to my under the banner of heaven mug. So but awesome hopefully we all have Mountain Mormon book reviews. So. so I also want to just, excuse me, if the microphone's rattling here. Um, our, our book giveaway contest for reaching for our 100,000th view uh, celebration. Uh, don't forget Infinite Goodness and Moroni's America are two copies that I have. And if you want to enter our book contest, you, go to, you enter in at mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. Uh, put in the subject line book contest and then give me your name and your address. And May 31st, 2022 is the deadline. You need to be, you can only be an American citizen. I had one of my regular viewers from Germany reach out to enter and that's like 65 bucks uh, to send it FedEx. So uh, it's only for US residents only and specify which book or both that you wanna have in the drawing. So either way, folks, we are now doing our Under the Banner of Heaven after show. This is now our fourth episode. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sure if I would keep going with this thing, but after we did uh, Jim Bennett last week, we see a real uptick in views for our first two episodes. Um, there seems to be some interest, but I also just really excited about the idea of having a fundamentalist take on the Banner of Heaven. So Benjamin, what I'd like for you to do is kind of maybe just give me your overview so far of what you think of the series. And then, um, and then we'll start talking about the, the episode that just came out. Okay. What do I think of the series? Um, wow, it's dark. Um, you know, definitely film noir style, they, uh, they say, right? Um, it, it's, it's got lots of uh, just terrifying music, even, just in the background, even in times where you think, oh, well, look, it's, this looks like a nice, pretty forest. Everything is safe and comfy. And then you go, no. This is supposed to be scary. You know, that's the way the whole, the whole thing's set up. Um, as far as um, its accuracy too, uh, there are definitely some important historical uh, things in there. So it's got some historical fiction elements, but I'm, I'm worried that at times I feel like we're definitely straying more into fiction than history um, on those, on those histor historical parts. Um, but it is, it's a really interesting view, I think. Of, of Mormonism, but honestly, it's a, surprisingly, it seems much more like an outsider view than an insider view than I, than I expected, in spite of the fact that, um, you know, I, I have to point out, there's a lot of people uh, who are saying that it's, it, you know, it was done without Mormon input. That's definitely not the case. There's a lot of Mormon input. There's a whole lot of things they did get right. Um, and yet, uh, the, the overall view, some of it's a little bit, uh, a little bit surprising. Let me give you an example. Um, this most recent episode. Um, in the most recent episode, we have uh, apparently some FLDS women down from Bountiful. How does that play into anything? And how does that even make sense? You know, it's like, um, that's a totally different group. They're in a different place. The last time in this show, they showed FLDS people. The FLDS people were not friendly to them. And they were like, drop off your supplies and get out of town, you know. Um, they were made to look very, very standoffish, very off-putting, um, you know, threatening. And now all of a sudden, there's a bunch of them sleeping in his house or something. How did they cross that bridge? You know, um, that seems like a real leap, uh, especially since uh, there really is no FLDS connection that I'm aware of um, in, in the actual history with the Lafferty's. Um, but then again, that's partly insider knowledge. Uh, I think that a lot of outsiders 
a lot of non-Mormon fundamentalists, that it would include LDS people, are going to take a look at this and say, oh, if they're veering into Mormon fundamentalism, then they're probably connected to um, the FLDS and Warren Jeffs group. That, that, that no, not necessarily. I mean, this, there's, it's a big world. There's a lot of different denominations. Um, you know, it would be like it would be like a Hindu saying, oh, you're Catholic. Oh, well, you must know Stephen Pinecker. He's a Christian, too. Like you got means you guys are part of the same club, right? You must know each other. It's like, no, just because someone's a Catholic doesn't mean they know evangelicals. There's a huge world of separation here. And so the idea that for some reason, these women came all the way down from Canada to hang out with Ron Lafferty. I'm just like, what? Where did that just that, that seems so far out of left field. And yet I think for the sake of the show, I think most people who are not um, Mormon or, or especially not Mormon fundamentalists, that just seems like, oh, that probably makes sense. I bet they know each other. Interesting. So, Rebecca, I want to actually, I have a few more questions about the series overall, Benjamin, that I want to talk to you about. But Rebecca, what do you, what do you, uh, what do you think so far of what Benjamin just said? Um, I have a comment on that because I was curious too about the three women in the house. And if you remember, they said the prophet Onias sent us here. So that is the connection because Onias started in Canada. Robert Crossfield, I think was his name, started in Canada, obviously, and then migrated here He's the one that started the school of the prophets that the Lafferty's joined. So to me, that sort of makes sense that Onias would have called some of his girls, women, maybe from his group there, brought them down here, maybe to start practicing the principle of plural marriage. That's about the only connection I can see. But there is the Onias Canadian connection starting the school of prophets and then the Lafferty's joined the school of prophets. So... Yeah, but no, the FLDS is a specific sect that Onias was never associated with. Right. Did um, they say on the show that the women were FLDS? They said yes. Onias brought it they here said, Bountiful is what I understood them to say. Well, I didn't think they said they were FLDS. Well, and Bountiful is a specific FLDS ah, community okay. as okay. well. So, so maybe that's where the confusion lies. Um, and of course, they're not part of the FLDS anymore. Um, the Bountiful community up there had a falling out with Warren Jeffs um, about with the time that Warren Jeffs was getting on the America's 10 Most Wanted list and had all of his, um, you know, ugliness uh, come out. Um, that doesn't mean to say that they're not somewhat FLDS in culture still in Bountiful, but but yeah, still no connection to Robert Crossfield. Okay, yeah, because he was independent. He was received his own revelation, started his own group. Okay, and you're right, a lot most people wouldn't know that. I wasn't exactly clear on that either, so... That makes a lot of sense. Huh. Cool, cool. So Benjamin, uh, I've been kind of keeping an eye on some of the stuff that you've been talking about. And that was uh, uh, one of the things that you seem to be very complimentary of how they showed the uh, temple ceremony. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I, I've talked about this a little bit because I was surprised at how well they handled it. So many things um, that they've done have seemed just a little bit surprisingly off. And yet that's one of the things I kind of appreciated about the temple scenes. Um, they were off in a way that I felt was very respectful. So temple ceremonies are for, especially for those of us who believe and participate in temple ceremonies, um, there's all kinds of sacred experience, sacred symbol, symbols, things like that, um, that you're therefore not supposed to talk about to the non-initiated. The idea is, is um, and I see this as much like any other ritual experience, um, partly because I come from a tradition where we do talk fairly openly about the temple. Um, you know, it's something you're meant to experience. It's not something that's meant to just be um, put out there to the world. Uh, and so uh, I thought for sure they were going to go over actual ordinance language, that they were going to depict a bunch of things that were actually specifically prohibited to speak about in that ceremony. And they didn't. Um, they gave a little bit of introductory remarks about the endowment, but they didn't actually include any endowment language. Um, they they showed uh, a priestess anointing the um, the forehead of of um, Daisy Edgar Jones's character, Brenda Lafferty, um, but none of that included any of the uh, any of the sacred language or commands. And then they also showed something, they wanted to make reference to a concept called the penalties that are part of an endowment ceremony. 
Um, and yet they did so without actually showing any of the actual penalties. Um, what it is, is that one of the penalties refers to the throat, um, having basically having one's throat cut. And that is not necessarily, um, from my point of view, about human sacrifice. It's about the ancient temple sacrifices. There were a couple of, there were several different methods used to kill the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Um, but then now, um, after Jesus Christ came, we believe that that put an end to sacrifice by the shedding of blood, uh, an end to the ancient daily temple sacrifices of animals, and the beginning of us offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, right? The sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit rather than the sacrifice of, of the temple animals. Um, so they wanted, but they wanted to work that in because uh, she was murdered by the Lafferty's by having her throat cut. And they wanted to draw this parallel, and it's an important parallel, um, to say, well, is this, especially because they wanted this to be as frightening as possible, uh, especially in the Mormon context, they want to make it look like this was a foreshadowing of what they would do to her, and that there's a religious connection to what they did to her. Um, now, of course, uh, even though I can see that religious connection, I find that a horrible profanation of any religious principle. That's just just ridiculous and disturbing. But then again, religious violence does occur. So um, that's that, that's what they're trying to do. But so what they did was they had her sort of refer to her neck without actually showing the penalty. Um, and then that 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 clip actually appears uh, a couple of times uh, in the in the show um, because they're trying to draw that draw that parallel. So I actually thought that was extremely respectful um, of the of the temple uh, ordinances and so forth, because it shows all of the important concepts. It showed everything that the plot needed. It foreshadowed everything that they wanted to do, made the connections they wanted to make, all without actually showing um, any of the actual temple endowment ordinances hmm. or symbols. Wow. Uh, just real quick. Uh... Do you also like the fact that they showed something that they know so that like if, if a regular LDS person is not aware of temple practices that occurred in the past when they made the changes, is that partly like, hey, at least they're seeing what the original, what the temple ceremonies were like? Well, um, right. Now, in my church, um, as a Mormon fundamentalist, right, I'm part of Christ Church, we actually still do the original endowments. Um, so yeah, you're right. From an LDS mainstream perspective, they're not aware that there ever were any kind of penalties at all, or even any reference to the ancient temple. Um, all of those references have been removed from the LDS temples. And so yeah, it makes it especially important for them to find some way to, um, to draw that connection for an LDS audience as well, who has no idea. Rebecca, why don't you weigh in here? It's very interesting, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I went through the temple the year after they took out that particular motion and promise that if you revealed anything that you had heard there, you know, you would, your own life could be forfeit and then did the motion. So um, I was not really aware of it. My husband went through before and he's the one that kind of explained it to me, which I thought was very interesting. So, but you're right. A lot of people don't understand that that was ever a part of it. And I agree they had to show it here. Um, number one, it was historically accurate. They were doing that in 84 or 80, I guess, two when she went through. And also they were trying to make those parallels that this was, well, in that case, I would call that a blood oath, right? You're taking an oath, a promise, a penalty. If you break this promise, um, blood atonement is what happened, I believe, the concept behind uh, Brenda's unfortunate murder. So two different things. I'm not sure if people understand the distinction between them. It's, it's kind of muddy. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about la uh, last night's episode. Uh, Rebecca, real quick, what overall, just give me your impressions. Well, it was funny. I was going to use the word dark too, <laughs> just like Benjamin. That was my first word. I was going to say it's getting darker and darker, more convoluted and more convoluted. I almost got the sense that they're throwing everything, including the kitchen sink into it. Every conspiracy theory, every, I, I mean, it's just, I wish I was watching it from a perspective where I knew nothing. I'm not sure what I would think. But unfortunately, I, you know, am fairly familiar with early Mormon history. I'm familiar with Mormonism in the 80s. 
so it's very hard for me to remove myself. I try to, knowing that there were consultants on this um, who who told them the facts, I'm, I have to think that what they portrayed were conscious choices and they're trying to lead the audience somewhere, but I'm not exactly sure because a lot of things almost seem contradictory. Like I said, throwing everything into it, including the kitchen sink. So um, I've watched it twice because I was trying to understand it, um, especially the use of the flashbacks and what they were alluding to very interesting and in what they're trying to say. Yeah, I want to get to the flashbacks, but bef because, uh, because I was easy as I was watching, I was like, hey, we haven't had any flashbacks early in this episode. And then, of course, actually probably one of the most important flashbacks, the most important flashback really happens in this episode. But before we get to that, Benjamin, uh, just maybe talk a little bit. First of all, I, I want to also comment dark, but also I was just watching it last night and it's, it is really a beautifully shot series you get a, a beautiful view of the terrain and just uh, the openness and the mount i mean i just it's just it does kind of showcase the beauty uh of the terrain there. music underneath i agree with benjamin yeah everything it's like oh beautiful babbling brook no you know it was terrifying to be a mormon here in the 80s <laughs> every day <laughs> benjamin so yeah um if you want my, you want my take on the uh, historical flashbacks? Well, no, um, I want to talk about that later on. I just want your overall impression of last night's episode. Um, my overall impression is, is that um, you're definitely seeing Ron's descent into madness and violence more. Um, I was surprised. Um, I knew a little bit about the history, obviously. So I knew from the very beginning that he was a killer. Um, and I was surprised at how some people um, who were watching the series and hadn't read the book were telling me earlier that, well, Ron seemed like he wasn't so bad. It was Dan that was the problem. Ron's not, not, not a bad guy. Wait, was Ron one of the bad guys? And I'm like, well, just watch the episodes, <laughs> right? Um, and so it was interesting to me to see um, that they're really, really have turned up the heat on showing that he is extremely violent, extremely dangerous. Um, and so they're really, they've really built up the case now that no, this, this guy's a killer. Um, it was one of my takeaways. Uh, and, and yeah, and most of my other takeaways are about the his historical flashbacks. I was really shocked um, at the way they portrayed Carthage as this lone building in the middle of nowhere. Uh, which is was odd. That's not how any of that ever looked. Um, <laughs> mm. um, uh, and and I was very confused about the allusions to the broken watch. I'm not sure what they were trying to do there. There's definitely something very strong they're trying to connect. But as a Mormon, as a Mormon historian, as a Mormon symbologist, really, I love symbology. I have no idea what they're trying to say. Well, um, well I think partly, I think, I, and then just that the, so you have the moment of the martyrdom mm -hmm. is allegedly happens we have the, the, the like at the moment the minute that it happened with the with the, the watch that that's part of the full right john taylor's watch was broken and whether that happened because he crushed it or a bullet hit it, it or whatever we don't know but yeah his his watch gets crushed during the martyrdom and i think and what he, what they're doing with in the modern context of the broken watch is that that's the moment where he feels the mantle like something changes within him and, and that and that 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 watch is the moment where it happens to kind of I just kind of show two markers of two turning points within the, those worlds, I guess would be my interpretation. I like it. I like it. I just don't know that it's a uh, I, I just don't know that it's a symbol that most people would know. Um, I, I guess the thing that confused me the most is that uh, Ron breaks the, a, a wristwatch and he says, you know what that means, don't you? And his son's like, oh, I know what it means. And I was just like, you've got a good point. Um, a broken clock is like, time has stopped. This moment is an eternal moment. But that's not something that I would imagine a small child to understand or something that's particularly a Mormon reference as much as it's just a reference to time mm. in a broad sense, you know? Yeah, interesting. So I... Uh... What did you just think of the reenactment of the martyrdom overall? I mean, uh, how do you how do you guys respond to it? Rebecca? I okay. No, you go ahead. Go right ahead. 
Um, it's always affecting to see martyrdom, uh, the martyrdom, especially from uh, a believing Mormon point of view. Uh, to me, there is something really poignant about that. Um, at the same time, I do, did kind of wonder what the lesson was that they were trying to bring out. Um, it seemed like they were trying to connect John Taylor and Brigham Young and all of these guys as like maybe they wanted it to happen. Um, I think that's an odd take, uh, especially odd because one of the things that they usually do is they try to make it look like all of the important players were all present at the same time or something. Um, Brigham Young had been on a mission. He wasn't there for the, the buildup to, um, to the martyrdom at all. He didn't arrive back in Nauvoo until well after uh, the martyrdom. And so I, trying to make it an illusion or a connection to Brigham Young, people often want to do this. It's just historically untenable. He had no communication with any of them. He, he, didn't, um, he didn't know about it until well after it happened. And so connecting Brigham Young himself to the martyrdom is kind of historical nonsense. That's, that's historical fiction. John Taylor, I can't imagine why he would have wanted it. And if he, thought, and if he knew it was even going to happen, if he even expected it, you'd think, he wouldn't have been like, look, I'll stand by you till death and then gotten shot to pieces, right? You'd think he would have gotten out of the way at the very least um, as a matter of self-preservation. And instead he got, he got shot four times. Um, so it was not an easy experience for John Taylor either, um, who's also somewhat famous for being much more of a pacifist uh, than almost any other Mormon leader. Uh, he was even a vegetarian, for example, because he did not believe that animals should be harmed. Um, you know, very much uh, built on this whole compassion narrative John Taylor's life is. And so um, it's, it's just kind of an interesting uh, thing that they're trying to make it like, oh, well, it, there was a conflict between Emma and Joseph and that there's people who wanted him to turn himself in because they thought that would help them. And I don't see how that would have helped them in any way to lose their most powerful and important, well, ally and leader, uh, which, would be, which was Joseph Smith. But uh, Still very, very poignant uh, uh, reenactment and seemingly reasonably accurate reenactment from what I can tell from uh, the way that it generally looked. Uh, for example, they showed that there were some guards that were standing there by the door and they were just letting everyone walk past. That's what we understand. Uh, there was a group called the Carthage Greys, a militia that was supposed to be guarding the prison to make sure that no mob came in and and dispensed justice without there being a trial. Um, and they just stood there and let them walk walk right past them just like that. Um, and uh, at the window, I, I especially liked the window part of the scene, which is often de-emphasized, but was beautifully portrayed at this time, which is that a lot of people believe that the reason why Joseph first went out the window, raised his hands and said, oh Lord, my God, was essentially a way of signaling uh, the the mob and the crowd below that they were in danger and that um, they should not continue to attack. Why is that? Um, there is a Masonic reference here. Uh, there were people in the mob as well um, that were Masons and a Freemason um, can give something called a sign of distress. And they and that's what they believe that he was doing when he was shot out of the window. Um, and so that was that was portrayed very very well. Instead of it just um, most most portrayals, just you hear him shout, "Oh Lord my God!" and you hear like the window crash as he just like falls through it dramatically. I don't think that that's probably exactly how it happened. I don't think he crashed through the window by accident or something, just exclaiming, "Oh Lord my God!" I think he was trying to he was trying to get everyone to stop. He was trying to see if one last plea both to heaven and to those below to to stop the violence and and you know and and plead for his life basically but well, um one of the things that i find so fascinating about you is and i would reference uh, folks if you haven't seen my previous interviews with benjamin uh, benjamin's a, is a free is a freemason as well as a polygamist so uh, i think that you bring interesting insights to the table in that regard as well Thank you. And I and I'm sure and the, that was not lost on any of the historians that were putting this together or advising on this. And so they were they were trying to make sure that that was clear in, in this reenactment. So yeah. I appreciated that. So, Rebecca, what do you where do you where do you think? 
Well, I was at least happy to see that they showed uh, Joseph Smith fighting back. A lot of uh, Mormons still don't realize that, you know, he definitely tried to defend um, the people that were there in his own life. Um, I thought it was interesting. I had read something, um, Lindsay, is it Lindsay Hanson Park, um, that consulted on this. She absolutely made it clear that it is a conspiracy theory that Brigham Young and the 12 were trying to get rid of Joseph Smith. And so this was a conscious choice um, from um, Dustin Lentz Black to show this. And so part of me always tried to, tries to think, what is he doing? Why is he showing this? Who is he trying to reach? What is he trying to say? But I've heard this theory a lot more recently. Um, I think a lot of people who want to believe that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy, but that was started by Brigham Young. I think maybe they definitely, this works for their narrative, you know, that he had to be gotten out of the way because he was, he was going to listen to Emma basically is kind of what they showed in the, in the episode, right? And not practice polygamy and they needed to get him out of the way. So it's, it's again, it's another way to look at it, but for some reason, it seems like it was a conscious choice to show that hint of conspiracy. So and I you're can't... right, Young was nowhere near. He was on a mission to Boston. So, and why would John Taylor have put himself in harm's way like that? That's what I mean, just throwing everything in it and it's up to the audience to sort it out, I guess. So it, it, I've had Justin Griffith on, who, uh, the writer-director of um, Who Killed Joseph Smith. Benjamin, have you seen that movie? I have, and I definitely have a lot of opinions about that too. Uh, there, it's it's not just historical fiction at that point. It's it's a malicious form of rewriting history that's absolute nonsense. Uh, in that film, Who Killed Joseph Smith, they contradict themselves constantly, including on the scientific or ballistics side. Um, you know, for example, they they said that they were going to do had to figure out which gut types of guns were used. And um, one of the hints was uh, the hole in the door uh, was shot by a musket ball. So they said, well, let's see what caliber fits through the hole uh, early on in the film. And they say, oh, look, it doesn't fit. A regular musket ball doesn't fit through this hole. It's, it has to be smaller than the 50 caliber. Um, that's a, a common, um, or what was it, a 40-something caliber um, that was common at the time. Uh, and so they were saying, we need, uh, so it probably isn't that. And then like 10 minutes later, they base all their ballistics on a, a caliber and type of musket ball that they already said couldn't have been, couldn't have been used. And then I'm thinking, wait a second, is no one going to go back and ever address the fact that, uh, you know, 20 minutes into this film, they're already saying that they have no idea what they're doing with the ballistics. And no, they just double down. And then they say, oh, yeah, no, we definitely have it right. This is what should happen. Um, I don't I don't understand any of what they were trying to do there until I understood their motivations. They're actually part of a group started actually very similarly with very, very similar authority claims as Robert Crossfield, this Onias character that they're trying to introduce in this series. Um, this Onias character, Robert Crossfield, um, they, they said the prophet Onias probably just sounded more catchy to him than uh, the prophet Bob, <laughs> right? Uh, but the prophet Bob's got a ring to it. I'm surprised he didn't go with that. But anyway, um, both of them made their authority claim basically that uh, anyone who's moved upon by the Holy Spirit has a priesthood of believers, essentially. And so any um, person can leave the LDS church and start a group, so long as they feel called by God. That was one of the reasons why this was considered dangerous, was that Ron Lafferty um, could then make this claim. He had no connection particularly to other Mormon fundamentalists, except maybe Robert Crossfield, who also had no particular connection to any other Mormon fundamentalist. They had no authority claim to being ordained by the people who were ordained by the people, so forth, back to Joseph Smith or, or some other kind of institutional authority. Their authority was that of believers. And uh, that's basically what Phil Davis, the leader of this Doctrine of Christ group that put together that movie, um, that's more or less similar to his authority claims. And then he had vision, powerful visionary experiences by which he received his authority directly from God, um, which is also very similar to what Robert Crossfield claimed. Um, but and why? Why do they want to do this? Uh, it, it's a it's highly motivated, highly motivated. They have to make John Taylor a villain, because John Taylor is central to authority claims. 
um, in an interesting way. If you look at maybe the web of relationships and ordinations and priesthood leadership, John Taylor seems to be there all the time. John Taylor was one of the very first um, 70s called Presidents of the 70, which according to the Doctrine and Covenants is one of the bodies that holds the keys. Uh, then he was one of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which is one of the uh, groups that holds the keys. Um, and in pretty much wherever you look, John Taylor's there. And then um, later on, after he's president of the LDS Church, um, he then sets apart other men to continue practicing plural marriage. Um, and we know at the very least that he did a bunch of that, even if people dispute uh, the 1886 events that are supposed to lead to most Roman fundamentalist um, authority claims through John Taylor. We know that he still did a bunch of other um, a bunch of other things that uh, the church had to change later. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's an important figure right there. And they're like, if we can make him a murderer, then he can't be a man of God. He can't be a authority, a source of authority. And that will break down the authority claims of the LDS church, the Mormon fundamentalists, everybody, which does what? It creates a power vacuum. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create a power vacuum where they can then say, well, God had to fill that power vacuum by calling Phil Davis. And so that's what I think they're really trying to do there. Interesting. I just, when I was watching the reenactment, I'm thinking, I'm thinking Justin, I wonder if he was like a consultant to this because it seemed like they took some of the themes that the, basically there was this group that wanted to take out Joseph and it seems to be the, the underlying premise of his, uh, who killed Joseph Smith as well. Uh, Rebecca, so, you know, you were just mainstream LDS and you, you just got schooled. We both got schooled by a, uh, by a, a fundamentalist and his view of John Taylor and the history and everything like that. How do you respond to that? What, what do you find interesting about that? Oh, I, you know, I had, I've, I've looked into that, those kinds of uh, claims and things, and I do find it very interesting. Um, I, I actually have a question. I'd like to ask Benjamin what his take on the revelation of the one mighty and strong actually is. I've, to me, so in my understanding, the LDS church right now says it was a revelation specific, sort of a closed revelation specifically aimed at Edward Partridge, right? If you don't get your act together, we're gonna call another presiding bishop, somebody who's mighty and strong and can lead the saints the way they're supposed to. Um, another take on it earlier, maybe I'm not sure when in the early 1900s was, um, okay, it could be an open re re revelation. There could be a presiding bishop that arrives at some point that is mighty and strong and might lead us to Missouri. So literally throughout the last hundred years, there've been about 30 people that claim themselves to be the one, <laughs> the LeBarons, all of them said they were the one mighty and strong, right? Brian David Mitchell said he was the one who kidnapped Elizabeth Smart. He was the one mighty and strong. You've got the Lafferty's. I mean, to me, it seems like one of the most dangerous <laughs> scriptures, revelations. You know, what if he would, I wonder if he would never have received that revelation, written it down. You know, maybe a lot of havoc would have been avoided. I don't know. What is your take on the whole, the one mighty and strong? I was so curious to ask you about that. Sure. Um, you know, I've met a few of these one mighty and strong people before, uh, several of them. It's it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, yeah. And there's just a lot of hubris that goes into that. People are like, oh, it must be me because I'm the best, you know. Um, and who was it? I want to say it was Art Bulla or one of them was like doing push-ups on the <laughs> sidewalk in, in Salt Lake City to prove he was mighty and strong or something. And it's like, what did you even think mighty and strong meant, right? Does it mean push-ups? Like, that's so bizarre. Um, my take on what it actually means is that it's referring to the fact that God has the power to set us in order. And essentially, I believe that it refers to the fact that when God's mantle, uh, God's authority falls upon a, per an, a person, then he makes them equal to their task. He gives them the ability to fulfill their work. Um and the one mighty and strong as a definite article, a, an individual, um, I take one of the classical views that a lot of Mormons have over the years, which is that it, it refers to Joseph Smith, that Joseph Smith's work of the restoration and his ongoing um, priesthood or prophetic role as the head of our dispensation 
Um, so he's somebody who um, is viewed as taking an ongoing role as the prophet of our dispensation, the first prophet of our dispensation, um, presiding over the, the priesthood keys, essentially. It makes him the one mighty and strong because what does the priesthood keys do? It does God's work. It sets in order the house of God and so forth. So, yeah, I, if people say, who do you think the one mighty and strong is? I'll say, well, it's Joseph Smith. And so, no, sorry, guys, if you've got like insane amounts of pride and you want to be super special, you don't get to just come in here and say that you're the one mighty and strong, you know. Um, but that's that is probably a, a fair analogy that they're making for Ron Lafferty, who I think may have actually claimed to be the one mighty and strong, along with a bunch of these other people. Yeah, um, no, because apparently from the series told him he was the one mighty and strong, but yeah, yeah. Ron claimed that it was him. So I, it's just such an interesting, I mean, um, the Strang Ice that, you know, he was, uh, you've got Denver Snuffers group saying that he's also, I mean, it really, there's a long list of people either self-proclaimed or their followers are proclaiming that he is. Jesus is on the list, Brigham Young, of course. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. Right. Well, Jesus is certainly one mighty and strong yeah. if he can save us from our sins, right? So, uh, but but yeah, just having this title hanging out there is one of the most uniquely Mormon right. things that they could bring into this series, and it's yeah, uh, yeah it's a good it's a, it it was a good move. I would have done the same thing. <laughs> great, this is great. Um, let's see. Um, trying to think. Um, where, where did I want to go next? Well, actually, Benjamin, I just. Real quick, why don't you talk a little bit about the church that you are part of? Sure. Um, so Christ Church is one of these uh, restoration churches. Um, you know, there's actually hundreds of expressions of Mormonism. Mm -hmm. um, extant expressions and extinct expressions of Mormonism have often been um, talked about by Stephen Shields in his works, um, Divergent Paths of the Restoration. Now, I do think of actual func currently existing functional churches that actually have people who attend them. Um, there's a much smaller number, much smaller number. But uh, for example, uh, Ron Lafferty is listed by Stephen Shields as yet another expression of Mormonism because he had his own um, following for a little while and his own uh, take on everything. Uh, but yeah, obviously there's no church that meets that's based on his tradition in any way. But, and there's no gr group that exists that kind of meets or, or, or has a community or anything like that. So we're one of only, I, uh, less, there's less than 10 that have actually built a temple, um, expressions of Mormonism. Uh, and, you know, we're one of those. So uh, we, we do have plural marriage. That's one of the first things. Uh, uh, the term Mormon fundamentalist is often applied just as a, a simple shorthand or a euphemism for polygamy in Mormon circles, not necessarily reflecting anybody's theology, but just uh, if there is polygamy, they call them fundamentalists. Um, one of them that I'm looking forward to seeing on the series, by the way, that's a Mormon fundamentalist group that I haven't seen yet, is that I was pretty sure that they talked to John Bryant's group at some point. Um, even though I'm sure that they were not part of it, I'm, I was thinking that that was gonna come into the series somewhere. The Lafferty's trying to reach out to John Bryant and his people. And like, they're an interesting um, group of people because they're almost, um, they're almost super liberal. Um, most of their priesthood ordinances are performed by women. Um, they are kind of like, I don't know, you get kind of a hippie vibe, you know? Um, a lot of talk about Gnosticism, a lot of um, experiential religion type things. And I, I, my impression is they should make some kind of a cameo in the series at some point. I thought for sure this was going to be the episode and I didn't see them. Um, but yeah, so my, my little church uh, is kind of the classic Mormon fundamentalists uh, in the sense that we have polygamy. We gather together and have the United Order. Uh, we have a temple where we perform the oldest versions of the endowment and things like that. Cool. Um, but hopefully we're not scary, even if I have a beard. No, you're not scary. Uh... <laughs> you're not scary at all. <laughs> Rebecca, do you have any uh, questions for any further questions for Benjamin? Um, so when you say you perform the oldest temple ceremonies, do you mean the oldest, <laughs> like in LDS, uh, back to the very beginning? Yeah, we believe those... that. It, 
it contains all of the original things Joseph Smith would have done in the red brick store and then were performed in the Nauvoo temple. Here's the one of the things that's a little bit tricky though. None of that was ever written down until 1877. Uh, no temple believing group actually wrote it down until, until the 1870s. Uh, so including Lyman White in Texas, um, including the Strangites, uh, including the Cutlerites, they did not write down the full context of the temple ceremonies. And actually the earliest written record we have in 1877 is more of a general overview. It is not a full script for the endowment either. So it doesn't contain every word for word instruction there either. Uh, the very first script that was written down was um, done in 1923. Um, so uh, you know, for to have a, a complete script. Now, our temple ceremonies follow 1823, uh, the 1923 um, script pretty closely, uh, but then they also contain the elements that were removed um, in 1923 that would have existed in in Nauvoo and so forth. Wow, because some of the early, early, early ones, you know, so I mean, drawing is blood. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how much I can say, but. Some of the very early ones are, uh, whoops, I just had a little mechanical difficulty here. Um, that's why I was curious about, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, some of the, you know, during the initial endowment ceremony um, used to create this, maybe I can't even talk about this on here, I'm not sure. I just wondered if you guys were actually doing that. That's so fascinating. Well, or I mean, like, for example, one of the things people will sometimes say is, I don't know if you're really, really doing the original, because in Kirtland, when they first did the washings and anointings, they had um, whiskey that had had right. spices and fully unclothed in a bathtub right i mean that's mm -hmm. what i <laughs> too much information right <laughs> uh, right um and and then and we 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 wash with water but oh. i don't think that washing with alcohol is inappropriate i think that that would make a lot of sense but i also just don't think that that's an essential requirement that there has to be cinnamon whiskey or yeah, whatever exactly. um i thought it was funny there was a costume party that we, we had going on. And the temple matron wore a fireball costume. Oh. <laughs> what? And so it was a bottle of fireball that she was dressed up as, uh, which is that cinnamon whiskey, right? And it was like, hey, Mormon history nuts, do you see why this is funny? That the temple matron good. was wearing a fireball wow. outfit. Um, and that was just, it was hilarious to us, but no, we usually washed with water. For example, water, so, but still the full I, the way matters. that they did it before the full in with a you know because before they were unclothed in a bathtub that kind of okay that's wow. interesting I'm just curious about that yeah and the way yeah. the same way that they would um they would have the marks put into clothing for the very first time you guys do that too um well usually some of these things are you know um and maybe this is for efficiency but uh putting the marks into the garment and dedicating the garment is something we do before the initiatory. Okay, so not during, yeah, because so, I know that so was very short-lived at the beginning, as I understand. Right, very, somewhat short-lived at the beginning was that people were sometimes arriving at the veil, apparently, without having the marks. Right, the so they would actually, yeah. And so then they would cut them there at the yeah. veil. We don't believe it's necessary to do that ceremony at the veil, but we do do that ceremony. We just do it usually before the initiatory so that their garments are prepared for it. Yeah. Sorry, I know I don't. I don't want to make you disclose anything that's uncomfortable. I'm just, I'm just so curious. No, it's very we interesting. Are, we are more open about talking about the temple. I think that's Obviously. really important. Yeah. A, a lot of the discussion about the temple, by the way, with under the banner of heaven, is about people who were very unprepared, um, and they they were very uncomfortable with the temple ceremonies, and so you know, uh, this is this is a terrible this is a terrible problem i think in mormonism nobody should be going there totally in the blind temple preparation classes don't prepare you at all in the lds church which makes no sense to me they should be telling you this is what's going to happen first this is what's going to happen second this is what's going to happen third these are the kinds of covenants you're going to make that that's informed consent people should have but informed consent church you do do that yes when you, yes when you in, that's wonderful yeah i completely agree i had i still have ptsd from my temple experiences so that's wonderful to hear that your members they understand fully what they're committing to and what's going to happen i mean it has to be that right. way and, and, and that that way. Otherwise, 
it should be a problem, um, right? And this is one of the things that uh, kind of drives me crazy about the way the LDS church changed the ordinances. It's like, you could have chosen to do whatever you wanted. Why did you choose what you chose? Now, because I view the temple ceremonies as sacred, the fact that they just wholesale cut stuff out, throw it away, change the ordinances completely, to me, that's like the worst choice they could have had. Um, uh, for example, in um, the early 2000s, very early 2000s, there was a lawsuit uh, in, uh, and I believe it was an English um, lawsuit. It was in the English courts. There was a man who said, I was totally unprepared for this. And I thought that it was assault and I'm suing the church. So, you know, he goes in to be washed and anointed. And he said, I thought I was going to be going to pray in a chapel or something like that. And instead they told me to take my clothes off. And then they touched me without asking my consent, without informing me what they were going to do or anything. And I just thought to myself, oh, that's, that's, that's awful, right? But in, so here you've got the church. They're, they're at this moment where they're like, wow, we don't provide informed consent. And that's illegal. What are we going to do about it? And they must have been sitting there having this meeting. And when they did, they decided, you know what we should do? We should just not wash and anoint anybody. Let's just throw out that whole ordinance. And we'll just symbolically give them a blessing and say it's good, you know? Um, and we'll add a little preamble that explains that we're going to only do it symbolically. That was what they chose. Instead of choosing to actually prepare people properly and get informed consent, like that would have solved it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, sometimes I'm flabbergasted at the choices that, pe that uh, the church has made. Uh, I would have simply chosen to actually make a point of getting informed consent. Do you think they were concerned that having known ahead of time people would not consent. I mean, that describes my experience exactly. Just absolutely horrified at what was happening to me. I kind of had an out-of-body experience because I didn't want to be there at that moment with being touched. Ooh. You know, I, I don't know if I knew ahead of time that that was going to happen if I would have, you know, been able to go through it. Maybe that was our motivation. Which is, sure. which is actually an even more damning uh, thing to even contemplate. Yeah. If there's somebody who's going to say no, then you let them say let no. Them no, yes, very good. That's exactly like, right. Maybe they didn't give me information because they were afraid I wouldn't consent. Well, now that just makes them absolutely culpable. Like, yeah, maybe, but if so, that's just really damning. I mean, that's just, that's awful to contemplate. That I, is I, such a good point. I'm so curious to ask you, um, sorry, Stephen, I'm like, okay. shooting these questions at him. <laughs> With your, with you are a Mason and you also participate in, you know, an early version of the temple. I mean, temple ceremonies. What can you talk a little bit about that? I'm just so curious to talk to people that are Mason and have experience in the temple. I'm always so curious about that. Especially a pre-1990 temple when they, um, when the LDS Church took out basically almost every reference to anything even remotely Masonic, um, almost everything. Honestly, I thought there'd be more intersection than there than there is, because I'd heard so much made of this, that, oh, Joseph Smith just plagiarized the Mason ceremonies, and that's what the temple is. It's just a bunch of Mason ceremonies. Um, I thought that there would be a lot more connection when I went through. I was like, oh, well, I already got a preview because I was, I was, a, I was, I'm a Mason, so I'll probably know more about the temple or, um, or vice versa, because I did one and then the other and then then the full endowment. Um, not at all. I mean, much less connection than I expected. Much less. Now, are there symbols in common? Certainly. But there's symbols in common in masonry and the basic structure of ritual in masonry and things like that, as there are with all monotheistic religions, uh, particularly, but even non-monotheistic religions. Um, I, I know Buddhist masons. I know Hindu masons. And even they found great parallels in spite of the fact that masonry is generally based out of the Old Testament, out of the Hebrew Bible. Um, there was still, there's still parallels to all religions. Uh, and so I, it wasn't as big of a deal as I expected. Uh, yes, there are some symbols in common. Uh, one of them that almost everyone will be familiar with is the compass and the square. Um, Masons put the compass and the square on everything, rings and their Masonic lodges and everything to, to denote this is Masonry. Um, and then in Mormonism, the two of the marks on the garment are the mark of the compass and the mark of the square. Um, 
which are also found on the veil of the temple. So here's a Masonic symbol, and yet they're used in different ways, profoundly different ways from each other. And so, yeah, the amount of overlap was not really as profound as I, as I thought it would be. Um, and yet it gave me a deeper appreciation for both because in both cases, we are um, using these symbols as a way of pointing toward the attributes of God. That, for example, um, uh, there's a famous painting uh, of, of God, uh, the Ancient of Days, with the compass reaching down. Um, Edward Burke, I believe, is the name of the artist, um, saying, you know, he compassed the seas, he and the land, uh, viewing God as essentially an architect, using these tools of architecture or masonry, geometry, uh, to create the earth. Uh, well, those are, that's the type of symbolism you see in the temple, one of the types of symbolism you see in the temple, and also one of the types of symbolism you see in masonry, but there's so much that's different. And, and the purpose is so different too, right? Like the Mormon endowment ceremony's purpose is supposed to symbolically represent your ascent into the presence of God. Um, this kind of this plan of salvation, in a sense, a way of symbolically showing how is it that we can become perfected uh, or go to heaven. Uh, masonry has no such uh, analogy. That's not the purpose of masonry. The purpose of masonry is not salva salvation. Uh, it's, it's tradition. It's a fraternity, um, but it's a tradition and fraternity about how we be, how we are, you know, to be a good man, to become a better man. But none of it is meant to save your soul. Uh, none of it's meant to serve a, a sacramental purpose in that way. And the entire narrative is completely different. It's not about ascending into the presence of God. Uh, masonry's um, symbols and so forth are usually um, about looking backward into the past of our. Uh, of the ancient temple traditions and things like that, and taking lessons from those traditions and symbols from those traditions um, that point to moral lessons um, and teach us how to be just. Like, uh, you know, this is like, goes back to early philosophy, for example, the Plato's book, The Republic, was about what is justice. And so we talk about a lot about those things. What is justice? What does it mean to be an educated man? What does it mean to, um, to control your passions? And not lose your temper. What does it mean to to do those types of, of of basic moral lessons? Is what masonry is all about. So so yeah, wi widely divergent in my opinion. But well, this is really fascinating. I get to get a little. I'm an outsider, and I get to have you guys uh, have this great conversation that I find really interesting. Just real quick, uh, I give this episode three out of five stars. What would you guys? Uh, what are your ratings? I'd say also maybe. Two and a half to three out of five. I, I do hope we'll start seeing more of Brenda. That's the one thing I'm starting to realize. This really is not Brenda's story, really. And I mean, I know that it's perhaps a catalyst for all the other events we're showing, but there's really so little of Brenda in the last couple episodes that I, that's kind of unfortunate. They kind of went that way. So I would hope to see more of her story a little bit. Benjamin? Yeah, I would say that this is definitely not Brenda's story. This is Dustin Lance Black's story. And he's trying to show us that story through the eyes of his fictional character, Jeb Pyrie. That's really what it's about. Um, and then trying to do it in kind of true crime style so that, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that the actual detectives knew immediately from the very beginning. They knew that Alan didn't do it. Day one, instantly. Nobody ever thought he did. Um, you know, for example, they knew right off the bat that they were looking for Ron and Dan and that they were definitely implicated from the very beginning. So they didn't have to actually in real life do any of this detective work that they're showing in the film. But what is it that they are showing? They're showing Dustin Lance Black's experience of reading the book. They want it to show what, what, what does a faithful Mormon feel and encounter when they read Under the Banner of Heaven. Who, you know, and the, the premise of Under the Banner of Heaven, I believe, is that all of religion is dangerous, that religion um, leads to violence, that religion is irrational. Um, and then, of course, uh, but it's compartmentalizable. So your average Christian, when they read Under the Banner of Heaven, is going to say, the lesson I took from this is that Mormonism 
is dangerous and violent and irrational. And then what's a Mormon going to think when they read it? They're going to, they read it and they think this isn't, doesn't say that all of Mormonism is irrational and violent. It's saying Mormon fundamentalists are dangerous and irrational. And then of course I'm a Mormon fundamentalist. So subset of subset of subset. And I look at it and I go, oh yeah, it really shows how dangerous and irrational the Lafferty's were specifically, but has very little to do with Mormon fundamentalism as a whole. Um, and yet I think that's the wrong lesson to take from it. One of the things that I've been arguing to people with under the banner of heaven is we need to take ownership. We need to see where in my community are dangerous elements like this arising and how do we address it when they do? Do we feed the megalomania like Ron's mother does in this episode where we tell him, oh yeah, you can do no wrong. You're the one mighty and strong. You can do anything. Um, and no matter what you do, it's moral because God will justify you in doing even great evil, you know, and things like that. Or do we, you know, do we turn a blind eye? Do we hush it up? This is another thing that we're seeing more of in this episode, the way the LDS church was trying to uh, save face by trying to separate and say, oh, the Lafferty's aren't really part of us. Um, and let's not make any media attention out of this. Let's make sure the media attention doesn't reflect on the church, um, which of course just makes it worse. It just makes it look like they have something to hide. And frankly, the LDS church had nothing, it was not to blame for the crimes of, uh, of Ron or Dan either. Um, and, you know, the same thing with Mormon fundamentalists. If you can say, oh, well, let's just blame the Mormon fundamentalists, then you also don't take ownership and accountability in your own culture, in your own, in your own group. So, you know, this is, this is a lesson we should take, for, I think, from these types of stories in history. You don't have to be a Catholic to say, maybe I should be careful in my ministry, in my church, even if it's an evangelical church, for example, we have a lesson to take from the Catholic um, problems they had with child abuse. You make sure that your church community is healthy in ways that those churches were not healthy um, by taking ownership of it and saying, look, these are fellow Christians who fell into apparently what appears to be a pattern of cover-ups and abuse. We want to make sure we don't do that. Um, and so... And so, yeah, I think that's what I, that's, that's a broader lesson I'd like to take from it. When it comes to actual stars, um, yeah, I'd probably give it two out of five. Okay. And the reason I'd be so harsh is I didn't, I didn't understand or like what they were trying to do with trying to say, oh, there's some kind of conspiracy, but not really, no firmness to that conspiracy, mm -hmm. no, no basis for it uh, with Apparently, someone wanted Joseph dead, but how exactly did they do that? They they claim uh, in this episode, they show that uh, Porter Rockwell probably uh, from the hair um, memorized a message from Emma, but then changed a few words in order to trick him. Um, that's that's definitely strange. Joseph did try to leave and not turn himself in. That's accurate, and he did get letters. Uh, in the form of actual written letters from various people in Nauvoo saying, no, you've got to come back. Don't, uh, you can't just run from this. We have to settle it. Don't worry. Uh, for example, one of their big arguments was don't worry. The governor, Governor Ford of Illinois promised him that he would protect him, that he would be safe from the mobs. Um, that, you know, that this is just going to be a matter that had to be addressed for the sake of the church. Joseph Smith famously said after reading, not just a letter from Emma, and actually reading it for one thing, um, and then reading letters from many other people saying, no, we need you to come back to help stop this mob violence that's starting to escalate. Um, he famously said, if my life is of no value to my friends, then it is of no value to me either. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he also did, get, did give the famous quote that they um, purposefully referenced almost that they were omitting, which is, I go like a lamb to the slaughter, but I'm as calm as a summer's morning. Um, because he did believe that he would be killed if he went to Carthage, and he was. Um, so yeah, a lot of that. And then, of course, the watch analogy, the frozen moment in time, maybe. Um, none of that was strong, in my opinion. All of that was a bit convoluted and kind of messy, and, and yet it was kind of central to the story. So yeah, that's why I'd give this one a lower ranking. But frankly, as far as TV or entertainment goes, I have to give the series much better than two out of five stars. Okay. Why? Because, because Andrew Garfield is brilliant. 
Um, I loved him in Hacksaw Ridge, where he um, he represented a pacifist going to war, which and and actually the um, that uh, the person he's playing is also another historical character who is one of my heroes, um, absolute hero to me as a pacifist myself. Um, beautiful, beautiful portrayals. He seems to have this niche right now where he does portrayals of religious figures. Um, honestly, I hope he doesn't mind being typecast a bit because he's brilliant at it. Absolutely brilliant. I think he may be on overload for religious characters. We, my husband and I just watched The Eyes of Tammy Faye a couple of weeks ago, and he did an amazing job as Jim Baker. It was incredible. I mean, the fact that he can do the different American accents with the flight, you know, the Utah accent or the Southern accent, it's amazing when he's British. No, he's, I agree with you. It's amazing to watch the characters. The acting is phenomenal. The cinematography, I think, is phenomenal. Um, even the underscoring, the music. Although ominous is amazing. Yeah, it has all these elements, but then when you get to the story, you're just left going. And maybe it's because we know too much. You know what I mean? Maybe somebody doesn't know anything. It's just like, well, of course it's obvious. It's this and that where we're going, no, because it wasn't this and that. I mean, maybe we know too much. We can't watch it from fresh eyes, maybe. But we'll keep watching, right? We're gonna keep watching to the end. We're gonna keep <laughs> watching. And I also wanna let you know that I have been in touch with Brenda's sister. Um, she's expressed an interest in coming on, whether we do an after show or maybe down the road, because she says she's really swamped, but she's definitely interested in engaging, uh, the, telling Brenda's story and her story as well. So uh, we, we want to honor Brenda um, as well, because this is really, it, it is, ultimately it is her story that needs to be told as well. Um, Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on today. You betcha. Thank you. And Rebecca, I'll see you next week. Who knows who our special guest will be? You never know. So folks, stay tuned. Uh, I just remind you to uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. We're now on almost all the major uh, podcast platforms and uh, about a quarter of my uh, listenership now is downloading the podcast. That's been growing fantastically. Um, if you need to reach me, uh, reach me at mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. Uh, also, if you want to support our channel uh, as a Patreon or on PayPal, you can financially support our channel. And I want to give a shout out to all those who are supporting the channel. And I just want to remind everybody you have yourself a great day and we will see you next week for another after show.